Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we just began a new series called The Original Playlist, and we're going through the book of Psalms. And when we we hit these these songs, it's it's kind of unusual because we read them, but they were actually meant to be sung. And I tried to get Sam to sing that (laughs) when he read it, like some Gregorian chant or something like that, and he refused. (laughs) He thought I was joking, but I was dead serious, and that would have been great. so part of it, like when we read this, when we get into this, I mean, this was meant to sing in community. The community of believers, those who saw Yahweh as their king, would come and they would sing this. And this is, Psalm 2 is a royal psalm, so it talks about the kingship of God. But when they would sing this in community, it would invoke, like, passion inside of them. It would uh, evoke emotions. It would invoke further devotion. You know, it's kind of different than a lot of the songs that we sing today, isn't it? thought it'd be fun to start off things a little bit differently. I started writing down some songs that have really bad lyrics that we would listen to in our car and kind of sing along to. And actually, I had a really long list and then realized like that was going to be my whole sermon, so I had to cut it down. So um, this last week, I just finished at uh, Chavez tutoring for the year, and everybody, all the teachers and stuff were singing Schools Out for Summer, Alice Cooper. But I don't know if you, even if you knew this. But this is evidence that sometimes artists have problems rhyming words. Um, Alice Cooper, School's Out, he says, Well, we got no class, we got no principles, we ain't got no innocence, we can't even think of a word that rhymes. (laughs) I don't even know what to say about that, except for you should probably use a word that you know how to rhyme to rather than using something like that. Or how about the killers? I'm down on my knees searching for the answer. Are we human or are we dancer? I, I call myself dancer all the time. I mean, that's, I, I know it rhymes, but come on, you're killing me, killers. There's a group called ABC and the song, That Was Then, This Is Now, and they say, all fall down, can't complain, mustn't grumble. Help yourself to another piece of apple crumble. Really. I mean, th- these are the, the artists and the poets that we follow and sing along to their songs today, and that's the best that they can do. Thin Lizzy and their song, Jailbreak. Says tonight there's going to be a jailbreak somewhere in this town. Think about that. There's going to be a jailbreak somewhere in this town. I'm not a rocket scientist, so I'm going to say at the jail is where the jailbreak is going to be. <laughs> REM, you are the everything. They say late spring and you're drifting off to sleep with your teeth in your mouth. <laughs> I expect the next lines to be lying in your bed with your eyes in your head, Mr. Feet Connected to Legs Man, something. <laughs> I'll end with this one, Queen and Bicycle Race, which my my boys love. You say black, I say white. 
You say bark, I say bite. You say shark, I say, hey man, Jaws was never my scene. <laughs> let's, let's just end it right there. Let's, it's a good place to quit. We pretty much could have included any Nickelback song in the worst <laughs> lyrics ever. But I want you to put yourself in the context of Psalms 2. When the community would get together and sing this song, anytime you had a king that was in power over your nation, you were in trouble of having another nation attack you. I mean, it was always like living on edge. Okay, we have a king over a nation. We have power. So any nation is going to want to destroy our king. And that's just kind of the context that they're living in at this, this time. And this, this psalm, when it was meant to sing in community, when they would sing this song, this royal psalm of Psalm 2, this would remind them of the promises that was made that, that King David, and through his lineage, would foresee the promises were made to Abraham, that he would bless the nations that that would go forth. So it would not only remind them of what was promised in the past, but it would also remind them of what was promised in the future when a king would ultimately come and help them to rule and reign forever. So singing this song and remembering the promises of the past, remembering the promises of the future, for the context which what they were singing would give them a peace. It would help them to trust, no matter what their present circumstances were, it would help them trust when they sang these words together. Let's look at Psalm 2. His psalm is divided into a four-part picture. These are called stanza. And each, each stanza has three verses within it. And you'll notice this in the psalms that they'll often say the same thing kind of twice and just kind of change the language. And you'll see that throughout this psalm. But each stanza um, contains three verses. And the first stanza summarizes the hatred of man against God. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The first word in the song says a lot. It's the word why. Why do the nations plot in, in vain? Why do the kings and the rulers come, come against me? This kind of sounds like something I would say to my children. You know, why would you do that? I mean, what were you thinking? Did you really think this was a good idea? Um, I asked Angela, I said, can you think of a time when we said that to our children? Like, what were you thinking? And she said, every day. <laughs> it just kind of shows you like where we're at in our parenting right now, because that's just what our kids do. But let me just give you a couple examples of this. For some reason, the first two are both involved cooking, which means we're horrible parents and our kids have to make their own meals. Um, but Emmett, who's my just turned four-year-old, decided one day that it was a good idea to make himself a grilled cheese sandwich in the toaster. So we had a nice cheese mess in the bottom of our toaster, which was awesome. What were you thinking? Weston, um, who just turned seven, he decided that he was going to cook his hot dog in the microwave, not for 30 seconds, but for three minutes. And I don't know <laughs> if you've ever done that before, but I walked into a kitchen full of smoke, and the stench was horrible. And I opened up the microwave, and there's this like, little burnt cocktail weenie, like <laughs> two inches long. And I just grabbed a hot mint, and I just opened up our kitchen door and threw it out into the yard. And I just left it there for like an hour. Uh, it was horrible. What were you thinking, right? Clara likes to climb. She's one and a half years old, and, and one of her favorite things to do is to climb up on the back of the couch and sit on the windowsill. And she decided one day that it was a good idea to jump off the back of the couch where we have a huge coffee table there. Thankfully, she lands on the couch every time, but we just 
every time we just hold our breath waiting for her to have to go to a hospital visit. What were you thinking? That's kind of what's happening here. That's what the psalmist is saying. He says, why do the nations rage and plot in vain? Why do they rebel? Why do the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together and set themselves against the Lord? It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Don't they know who the Lord is? Don't they know Yahweh? Don't they know that, that Yahweh is the most powerful thing in all of the world? And don't they know that he's good? It doesn't make any sense. Why would they set themselves against Yahweh? And that's what the psalmist is asking here. This isn't going to end well for them. Why were they doing this? What are they thinking? Think about this for a second. I want you to think, what would make nations and rulers rebel against God? What would make people turn their backs and rebel against God? In the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said, However mad the resolution to revolt from God, it is one in which man has persevered ever since the creation and continues in to this very day. I mean, that's, that's the status of who we are. That's the status of sinful and rebellious humanity. It's almost like they can't even help themselves. Let me just see where God is, and I'm going to turn the other direction. It reminds me of, of just trying to discipline my own children. If I tell them to stop doing something, they have to do it one more time. It's in their very nature to have to do it one more time just to test their dad. And that's kind of what the nations are doing here. Verse 3. And they say together, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I actually like the NIV translation here. It says, let us break their chains, which was a metaphor for rebellion. They are like purposely rebelling against God. And they rebel against God. I think this is really important. They rebel against God because the very existence of God means there is somebody over them. Let me say that again. Let us break their chains. Chains was a metaphor for rebellion. And they rebel because the very existence of God meant that there was somebody over them. There was somebody who had authority over them. There was somebody who they had to submit to in that. And that shouldn't really be hard for us to see in our culture today because we rebel against every kind of authority that we can, you know, don't put that man over me. We, we just hate authority. You can see that in our culture and you can see the way that we, we love our own sin and, and we love our, our own rebellion and this is kind of where we've, we've come up with the thought of reducing God to a God of love. Like, if we can reduce God to a God of love, then we don't have to be held responsible for anything that we do. But think about this for a second. If you say, we want a God who is loving, but we don't want a God who is just, we want to just be able to act whichever way that we want, and we don't want to have circumstances for what we do, we don't want to be held accountable for that, we just want to be, be good in that, can you imagine saying that about a king? If we had a king over our, our nation and we said, you know, we just want a, God, a, a king who is loving. We just want him to, to let us do whatever we want and not hold us accountable. And, and that would be great. That's the kind of king that we want. That would be ridiculous, right? That would be ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. A king who is only just and not merciful would be a tyrant. But a king who is merciful but not just would not be fair. He would not be a good king at all. He would be a fool. 
We prefer a God who is not just because we don't want an authority over us. We want to be our own gods. In C.S. Lewis' book, Surprised by Joy, he actually quotes his, his good friend, George MacDonald, who said, the one principle of hell is, I am my own. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. I mean, that's our souls. That's what we cry out for. We want to be our own. This is why the kings and the rulers rage and plot in vain. They rebel against God by rejecting his authority and rule because they say, I want to be my own. I want to be free from God. I want to be the master of my own soul. I think our culture sees this as being free. Like if I can just be my own and be free from um, having to be held accountable from God, that that would actually be a freedom in that. But what they get is they get the exact opposite. They, they don't get all the benefits that come with God, and they become slaves to their self. They become slaves to their own sin. So what from the outset looks like freedom actually ends up being bondage to themselves. Spurgeon says, To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to a saved sinner, it is easy and light. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I just ask you this morning, uh, do you love the yoke of Christ? Do you love that yoke? Is it, is it easy? And is it light for you? Or do you reject it and wish it cast from you? Do you wish to be your own, or do you wish for Jesus to call you his own? This is the scene that we're seeing here in this first stanza. The world rejects God and casts his yoke far from them, but God looks down and questions their intentions. Even the psalmist cannot believe it. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? And then the second stanza, God reacts to their plotting in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. Do you see the contrast that's happening here? Nations rage and plot in vain, and God who sits in the heavens laughs. There's not a lot of parts in in the Bible where it actually talks about laughing, and and for someone like me that actually gives me hope, even though he's not like laughing at humor, he's actually like scoffing at the people, like, like, what are you thinking? I mean, you really think that your ways are better than my ways? I mean, I created everything. I sustain everything. I am control of everything. I'm a sovereign over everything. Do you really think that you can make your plans better than the plans that I have for you? He laughs at the plans. This reminds me of in Genesis when humanity had built the, the Tower of Babel, and the whole idea was this. is like, let's just come together as, as humanity, and we'll build this giant tower that will stretch up into the heavens, and then we will make a name for ourselves. Then we will, everybody will know how great that we are. And I love the way the text says it. It says that God came down to see what they were building. It's not like as if he was not existent in the presence, but it's meant to show like God is far above that. You think you can build this giant tower into the heavens, God is still going to have to come down to see what you are building because that's how, how high above humanity actually is. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens, 
he who sits in the heavens. It's not as if God has legs or a lap like us, but this very imagery is meant to show that, that God sits in a throne. He is ruling. There, there is some kind of kingship involved with God, and it is far above all earthly rule. You think these kings coming together and making these plans to come against God, and God is just up there. He's, he's far above where they're at, and it's meant to, to build this contrast. God is the king. He is the ultimate king. He's the almighty king. He's a ruler far above all earthly rule. And when the nations plot against him, he laughs. I love books and movies about kings and kingdoms and battles. I don't know why, but I just find them, them so interesting. Um, but if, if you've ever followed that, you know that like kings, when you have a king, it just doesn't end well. I mean, there's, there's no good picture of, of a great king that we can look at and say, okay, that's Jesus. That's, that's the king who we picture in, in our head. And, and just comparing an earthly king with a God who sits in his throne far above, I mean, just putting that in the same sentence is laughable, right? Isaac Watts, who was a famous writer of hymns, including Joy to the World and When I Survey the Wonderful Cross, he wrote a hymn about Psalm 2. And listen to the words in this. Here's two of the verses. Thy walls are strength, and at thy gates a guard of heavenly warriors waits. Nor shall they deep foundations move, fixed in his counsels and his love. Thy foes in vain designs engage, against his throne in vain they rage, like rising waves with angry roar that dash and die upon the shore. The whole idea that Watts is trying to say here is that when we as human beings think that we can actually stand up against God, that we, that we might have plans that are, are better than him, when the nations come together, so they're not even going to get off the shore. They can't even get through his, his gates. They're not even going to put a scratch on his armor because that's how much more powerful he is than all of the nations and all of the kings. He is far above all. So we appeared into the council chamber of the wicked and onto the throne of God. And now in the third stanza, the psalm switches gears and it, it changes to the voice of the Son. And the Son declares his sovereign dominion over all and warning traitors of their doom. In verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The father says to the son, and notice that the son is capitalized in here. This shouldn't be hard to figure out. He's referring to Jesus, who would be the ultimate king who would reign forever. If you have the NIV, the NASB, or ESV, uh, son should be capitalized there. It says, you are my son. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In referring to the nations, he tells the son, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You know, in, in Revelation 5, it's one of the few places that actually talks about Jesus as being the lion and the lamb. And I think in a lot of churches, in a lot of our language, we, we talk a lot about Jesus as the lamb. And you know, even when uh, we were in our Luke series, we saw that when Jesus was on trial, he didn't even open his mouth. He was like a sheep um, off to be sheared. And even on the cross, I mean, he could have just called down powers from heaven and, and he just sacrificed himself like a lamb. And we see that. But then there's times like this where you see the sun, where he is like the lion. He's a lion. 
of the tribe of Judah. And, and just at his very speaking, people tremble. I don't want to avoid Jesus being the lion as well. I think in our culture, it's, it's a lot more acceptable to talk about him as lamb, but, but he, is, he is powerful. As a very voice, nations will tremble. This is the Jesus that, that we can call Lord. This illustrates two equally valid points. And the first is that the nations and kings that come together against God, they think they're strong, but they're not. They could be dashed like, like potter's clay, just broken. And this illustrates the second question is, is the true king really that powerful? Are the nations really that weak? And the answer is yes. God is that far above. God is that much more powerful. He's the true king. And everyone who tries to stand against or lay stake to his claim will be dashed to pieces like fragile, brittle clay. Now I know this sounds kind of bad, but this should give us great assurance. I mean, if you call Jesus your king, there's a lot of assurance in that. I mean, if we got a mighty strong warrior who fights our battles for that that shouldn't be something we like well i don't i don't really like that i mean we want a powerful king right it should give you you great insurance in that he's that jesus that that strong lion he's he's in our corner he fights for us he rules but in this when the son is speaking this way it's not as if the king is just giving his enemies a chest bump He's not just challenging them to to take him on. He's inviting them to see their true status and giving them an opportunity to be able to turn from that, their rebellion against God. It's it's a loving act to ask them to turn from this. This this path you're headed down, this isn't going to end well for you. This isn't going to be good. This isn't a chest bump. He's just asking them to turn from what they're doing. Turn to the true king. Um, Sometimes warnings can, can seem unloving. Um, anybody remember hearing the, the report in, in Michigan back in January? There was this huge snowstorm. And there was like a 195-car pileup on I-95. Do you remember seeing that? I, I know this because somebody on Facebook had posted the video, and there's a guy out there shooting with a cell phone, and I don't know why people can't turn their cell phone in the right direction. But he's shooting a cell phone, and it's, it's just frightening because what you have is you have this huge snowstorm, which was like zero visibility. They could barely see in front of them. And the conditions were so bad and so slippery. And you see people just flying in, like doing 60 miles an hour. Like they're not even, um, they have the signs there. Like, hey, if I can't see and I can't stop, I probably shouldn't be driving 65 miles an hour. But they don't heed the warnings in there. And what you see is they, just like all of a sudden, coming out of nowhere, out of the snow, they see this pile up and they slam on the brakes and they can't do anything and they slam into whatever's in front of them going about 60 miles an hour, and you just hear this crashing of metal, and you hear like children crying out for their dads, and it's, it's horrible. In fact, the, the accident itself was caused by a van who slowed down in the front because the conditions were bad, and a semi plowed in the back of them. This kind of reminds me of another accident in London where there was intense fog and the police had been called out, and there was a, a semi that had tipped over on a corner, but 
because the fog was so bad, they, they couldn't see that. And they would go around this curve and they kept crashing into it. So these police had run out and they're waving their arms and screaming at people and they set cones out in the road, but the fog was so dense that they couldn't see the cones. So they began picking up the cones and throwing them at the cars that were going by just to get their attention to stop because they were driving way too fast for the conditions. Now just imagine if I begin that way with a story of warning. If I said there was these people that were standing in the road and they're waving their arms and they're yelling at people and they're throwing cones at people's cars, you'd probably think, wow, how rude. I mean, what, the, what are these people doing? But when you know the outcome, that, that they hear the crashing of metal, that they hear people screaming, that they hear death in their presence, that this warning isn't bad at all. That's about the most loving thing they could do is run out there in the street and throw cones at people's cars. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what the Son is doing here. It sounds harsh for this warning, but he's warning people, you know, this, this road that you're going to go down, that the end is bad. You need to stop. You need to turn. You need to go down a different road here. This is not going to end well for you. Turn around. Take heed. In the end, there's really only two kinds of people in this story. There's those who rebel against the Lord, and there's those who take refuge in the Lord. That's it. There's those who conspire against God, and there's those who take refuge in Him. But for those who have taken refuge in God, I think there's still two options for you. You can fear the powers of this world, or you can fear the King who rules over all. You can fear the powers of this world, or you can fear God. When I say fear, I know that's kind of a strong word, and, and in some ways it just means reverence, where you, you see God in, in that kind of way, and you're like, I revere him because he is good, because he is the majestic king. But there's also a sense of, of trembling that happens in that, where we, we think about it, you know that, that God could just shatter you to pieces, so there's this, this trembling. There is this fear of knowing how great and how powerful that God really is. This last stanza is filled with warning. It's filled with a lot of, of words that don't sound kind, that don't sound loving. Warning, fear, trembling, anger, wrath. But in the midst of those words, there is another word that just kind of seems out of place. One of these words is not like the other. Which one is that? No. Well, it does seem out of place. <laughs> rejoice. Rejoice. Think about that. Put rejoice in the context of fear, trembling, anger, wrath, warning. Rejoice. How is it possible to rejoice in trembling? How is that possible? Because the true king is not only powerful and just, he is loving and merciful. We tremble as we stand before the almighty king who could dash us to pieces, especially when he is just and we know that we are guilty. We know that when we stand before his counsel that we deserve whatever punishment that we get. But yet, he is merciful. And even though we're guilty, somebody else pays the price for that, don't they? 
Even though we deserve punishment for our rebellion and being traitors in our own way, the king is merciful, so rejoice. I mentioned earlier, like if you follow the kings of, of this world, like it just never goes well. I mean, they don't do a, a great job. Um, they abuse power. They're often tyrants, um, sometimes putting people in slavery. Like, the word king has just not done a good job, and it's almost like you need somebody to come in and redeem the word king in itself. The history of kings has left something to be desired, but, but here in the psalm, you see something. You see a promise of a new king who's coming, a good king. And that's God's own son, Jesus, who would seek justice and display great mercy. Look back at verse 6. I don't know if you can get the slide on there, but if you have it in your Bibles, look at verse 6. It says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, Zion was um, a hill that was just outside of Jerusalem. It was often represented as Jerusalem. So when you said, you know, Mount Zion or something like that, you were actually speaking of Jerusalem itself. But it was also the highest hill in that whole area and was closest to the temple. Um, So it had a lot of meaning. It had a ton of meaning. And God says, I am going to sit my son to be king on Mount Zion, like over Jerusalem. He is going to reign almighty. He is going to have all the power in the world. But then he displays his mercy because what happens when Jesus comes? He's on a different hill, right? He's on Calvary. We get this imagery of of Jesus as the king, and then he comes, and he's the lamb, and he goes on the hill of Calvary. And here he doesn't sit on a throne. He is nailed to a cross. That's not really the way you picture a king living. He, he lives a perfect life, and yet he dies a sinner's death in order to rescue us. This king, he laid down his crown, crown, he set aside his power, and he's led away like the sheep to be slaughtered. And in this, he went to battle for us in a different kind of way, right? He was a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus was the perfect lamb. He defeated death, and he freed us from the bondage of sin. And it's here where we see God's mercy on full display and where his justice is satisfied. And God's own son, the true king. For us, if we acknowledge Jesus as our king, our savior, and our Lord, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Any kind of sin, all of that guilt that would bring you before God and face his justice, it is gone in Jesus When you stand before God, he sees the king in you who is holy and just and right and good. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. That's why we needn't fear fear the world. You know, we live in a, a kind of scary culture where Sometimes it's not good to talk about Jesus. Sometimes you might fear that. You might fear the rejection. We're not being uh, persecuted in the same kind of ways as people are overseas. But I think this psalm is kind of meant to give us confidence in that. When you go out into the world, you can boldly speak about Jesus, your king, because Jesus is the almighty king. You don't have to bend your knee to the rulers of this world. Well, to follow the law you do, but I hope you know what I'm saying. We have a king who is powerful and above all but yet he's good and he's merciful that's the kind of king i can follow that's the kind of king that would give me boldness to live out the gospel in this city let's pray
Father, we acknowledge that our ways are not your ways. Your ways are not our ways. And Father, sometimes we do put plans in front of us that, that we think if, if we can just live this way, if we can just achieve this, if we can become this, then life will be good. But Father, we, we ask that you reveal your plans to us, that you might show us that, that your ways are better than ours. Father, and what comes to living life in, in this world, we ask that you help us find refuge in you. The, you might help us to see that we can't take refuge away from you, but we can take refuge in you. Help us to cling to that promise as we live out the gospel in the city. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.